Today, we're transitioning from intimacy to authenticity. Intimacy to authenticity. Last month, we focused on the theme of intimacy as we went through our fall sermon series. And I hope this is a journey for you for a long time to come. You cannot figure out intimacy in a month worth of sermons. Um, I've been working on this for about 16 months, and I'm just starting to scratch the surface, I think. We are going to transition now into authenticity this morning. And as we do, I want to give you a quick definition of what authenticity is as we work through this idea for the month ahead. So here's a quick definition before we get into the scriptures. It's it, to, to be authentic, and this is from dictionary. It means to, be not, to not be false or copied, to be real, to be sincere, to be genuine, or to represent what is true. Now, for you Bible people, which I hope we all are, you're not going to find the word authenticity in the Bible. So those of you who are a little bit like skeptical and you're like the, the Bereans, you should be. The Bereans are a group of people who studied the scriptures for themselves. They didn't take the word of a pastor or a podcaster. They got to know God's word and studied it. Those of you who are Bereans, and I hope we all are, you're not going to find the word authenticity in the Bible. And, and let me explain that to you. You are going to find the word sincere, genuine, real, truth. And so as we go through this sermon series, we're going to be looking at what God says is right and real and true about us as individuals, about him and his kingdom and his glory. And then how do those things come into alignment? That's really what we're looking at. And so I just want you to know I'm using the word authenticity because that's a word that I feel like our culture understands and knows. But biblically, it means what is sincere, what is genuine, what is true. And so that's what authenticity is. Authenticity for any person, any human being, is when the internal is ac accurately represented by the external. It's, it's when there is a, a closing gap in hypocrisy, that what you say and what you do is, is becoming more aligned, that what's going on internally is actually being revealed externally. So if you're judgmental internally, and you start to speak judgmentally, that's actually authentic. You're revealing what's going on inside, right? If you are internally feeling compassion and you express compassion, that is authenticity. What you do externally is being, re it's revealing what's really going on internally. I don't know about you, but I think we struggle with this. I, I struggle with this. And as I, as I just study people and get to know people, I think authenticity is really hard. Because we have all these things, especially in a religious church culture, we have all these things swirling on inside of us, and, and we're not sure if it's a safe place to work through them. And so sometimes we become very fake. And in fact, the world, one of the major critiques of the Christian church that the non-believing world has is that they're fake. They're hypocrites. That's because we try to keep, on, keep this religious face on and these religious traditions and these religious duties and, and we don't let people see what's going on, really going on inside of us because we don't want to be judged and we don't want them to think that our faith is false. And so therefore, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, we pretend to be a certain way in certain circles with certain people and then, and then deep down we have these struggles going on. And so authenticity, just purely for any person, it's when the internal is accurately, accurately represented by the external. Now, it's a little bit different for a Christian. One more definition piece before we get into the scriptures here. Authentic, authenticity for the Christian is when the internal is accurately represented by the external, just like for any human being. But for the Christian, it's both of the internal and the external are made new and transformed by Jesus. 
We grow in authenticity by a true knowing of God and self in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what authenticity means for the Christian. That's what it means to be sincere, to be real, to be truthful, to be genuine. It's that what is going on inside of me and, and what is coming out of me, what is being seen and perceived and experienced by other people, they are matching more and more as I walk with Jesus. My sanctification, my holiness is becoming more visible. And actually, in the process of sanctification and holiness, you might actually feel more sinful because you're becoming aware of your own shortcomings. And you're saying, why is the distance between God's holiness and, and my, my sin tendency so far? But as you begin to express that and confess that, you begin to grow. See, Christian growth and authenticity is a result of confession, not suppression. Confession, not suppression. I think sometimes in religious circles, we're afraid to confess. Because we don't want to be judged. We don't want to be criticized. We don't want to be corrected. We don't want to feel like the only one that's screwed up, at least as much as we're screwed up. And so we suppress what's really going on we put on a face, and this is inauthentic, and the scriptures are going to call you and I to become more authentic people, where what's really going on inside in the soul, this is the soul work, right? Trying to, dis, dif, to figure out, to, to define, and to, to discover what's going on in my soul, and then to actually let it out, and let the light of Jesus Christ shine into that place and bring us healing. But it's internally and externally that Jesus is transforming who we are. And so we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we know God by looking in the face of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. And so that's where we're going this month. We're going to dive into authenticity. And I want you to know that authenticity flows out of intimacy. I'm convinced that if you do not find authenticity with God and a few other people in your life, you will really struggle with authenticity. If you don't find intimacy with God and other people, you will struggle with authenticity because it's from a place of deep heart connection where we feel safe, where we feel known, where we feel loved, that we can begin to become who God has created us to be. And so this morning, to start out with the topic of authenticity, I'm going to read from Psalm 139 again. I'm going to ask you to stand as I read it. Some of you will be frustrated because I already preached this passage, but I'm going to preach it again. Preached it last month related to intimacy, but there's a unique shift in this passage that moves us from intimacy into authenticity, and I want to look at that this morning. Psalm 139. David, the warrior king after God's own heart, says... O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. 
The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against me with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count, my, I count them as my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, I pray that verse 23 and 24 would be true of us this morning and in this season and for our lives, that we would be open-handed, allowing you to search us and to know us and to reveal um, ourselves and yourself, and that we may live our lives in the light of your grace and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. As we look at this passage, the first thing to note here, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about this because this is really what we focused in on the last month, but it reminds us that we are intimately known by God. We are intimately known by God. Here's the truth of this scripture, but also the Psalms and the scriptures. If, if you start reading the scriptures with this, with this lens of trying to look for intimacy with God, you're going to see that God has sought you out. He has pursued you. Even the fact that you're sitting here this morning, it's God leading you, pursuing you. He's wooing you. He's drawing you into relationship with himself. The God of the universe wants a relationship with you. Is that amazing? Eight billion people on planet Earth right now, not to mention all those who have come before us and all those who will come after us, and the God of the universe knows your name. He knows the number of hairs on your head or the lack thereof. And he loves you. He's pursuing you. He wants a personal, not just a religious, relationship with you. He's gone to great lengths to initiate that relationship. The Lord, he knows your deepest, most intimate thoughts. It's kind of scary, right? There's a lot of people that you don't want to know your deepest, most intimate thoughts. And yet God knows them the good and the bad. He gets you. He knows you. He understands you. And he likes you and he loves you. The Lord hems you in and he holds you close. Look at verse 5. You hem me in behind and before and you, you lay your hand upon me. Do you hear that intimate language that David uses for his relationship with the Lord? He, he, he keeps us. The imagery of a, of a shepherd is throughout the scriptures. And, and a shepherd would take their sheep and hem them in and hold them close and keep them from danger. And when they enter danger, he would go after them and bring them back to the green pastures and to the still waters. I love this imagery in Psalm 17 where David says that, that we are the apple of God's eye. 
the app, you are the apple of God's eye. Now, what does that even mean? If you do a little research and study on that phrase, the apple of the eye was a, a Hebrew idiom to mean that the, the man of God's, uh, the man of God in his own eye, in his own reflection, or the woman of God in his own eye, in his own reflection, it's the little person of my eye. Really, it's this imagery of the image of God in human beings being reflected back to God. We are the image of God, created in his image and likeness. We are the apple of his eye, his beloved, the ones that he beholds when he looks at all of creation, the amazing mountain scenery and oceans and lakes and fall color. There's some trees right now that just blow my mind, right? If you stop and you notice, some of the colors are just amazing. In all of this scenery, all this creation of God, it's, it's mind-blowing if you sit still and take it in. And yet, the scriptures are saying that you and I we're the apple of God's eye. You're more beautiful than the Grand Canyon. You're more beautiful than the fall colors. You are more beautiful than whatever the most beauty that you could set your mind on in God's eye. Amen? The Bible teaches, this passage specifically teaches that we are intimately known and loved by God. And then as we keep going into the next section, we're constantly surrounded by God. Look at verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? It's a rhetorical question. I can't. I can't escape God. I can't get away from him. He's everywhere. That can be haunting, right? If you're trying to pursue sin, if you, if you, if you don't want to surrender your life to this God that's, that's haunting and annoying, but if you're in him, oh, that's so glorious to know that you can't outrun his grace. He's everywhere. I love what David says here in verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. That's the imagery of God up in the heavens, right? The, the, this, this, this heavenly realm where God exists, and God also exists in this earthly realm, but it's this idea of ascending into the holy. In the Old Testament, they had the tabernacle. That, that It's like the place where heaven and earth kissed. The holy of holies, this place where God's glory would dwell. And so this imagery, if I, if I go to heaven, you are there. It's this this nod towards holiness. If, if I, in a state of holiness, pursue God, if somehow I was able to fulfill all the law and make myself clean and holy enough to ascend to heaven, which the biblical story is we can't, we need Jesus to do that, but somehow if I could, if I could ascend to heaven, God is there because he is holy. Cannot run him. But I love this next part of this verse, verse 8. If I, if I make my bed in Sheol, Sheol is the grave, it, it's the ground underneath. It's representative of death and oftentimes separation from God. And David's saying, if I make my bed there, not just if I go for a little journey into Sheol and come back, but if I make my bed, if I enter into the darkness, if I decide to make peace with darkness, but God has made a covenant with me, even then, God is there. I can't escape him. Even in my darkest moments, in my darkest pursuits, in my greatest doubt, God is there for his people. You can't even outrun him in Sheol. It says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I love verse 11. If, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Right? This imagery of darkness. The dark night of the soul. Wrestling with sin. Wrestling with doubt. Not feeling God. Not experiencing God. Wondering where God is. 
In verse 12, he says, even the darkness is not dark to you. For where God is, there is freedom. Where God is, there is light. And so if you, are, if you feel like you're stuck in darkness, if you feel like there's some dark things in your soul, or there's a dark night of the soul, or God has been silent, be patient, keep waiting. God is there with you, and eventually over time, that dark night of the soul will be lit up by the glory of God. Even darkness is not dark to him. He is light in the darkness. Amen, church? This is God. You're constantly surrounded by him. There is nowhere you can go where he says, that's too far. You, you are too far gone. If you're in Jesus. Pastor Kyle preached from Romans 8 a couple, maybe a month and a half ago, and it says, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing, if we're in Jesus Christ, nothing separates us from the love of God. We are constantly surrounded by this creator God who loves us. That's all this piece of intimacy review from last month. And now in verse 13, we kind of shift towards authenticity. It's intimacy paired with authenticity, but we're starting to make this shift here. Verses 13 through 16 teach us that we are wonderfully created by God. For you, God, formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This is a, a unique Christian teaching and offering in the milieu of all the different religions or anti-religions in the world. This idea that human beings have worth and value comes from the scriptures. It originates from God and his people and the Israelites in the Old Testament, the Hebrews, believing that there's intrinsic worth and value in people, all human beings, regardless of race, religion, creed, because they're created in the image of God. Whether you're young or old, black or white, healthy-bodied or disabled in your body, you are created in the image of God and you are wonderfully, uniquely created by God. Amen? How we need this reminder. Every one of you needs this reminder. You are wonderfully, uniquely created in the image of God. The way that you process information, the way that you relate to other people, your areas of wounding and brokenness, God can meet you there. And there's sin. We're going to talk about how sin like mars and damages the image of God. But oftentimes, your areas of wounding and brokenness and insecurity, it's because somebody else's brokenness is bumping up against your brokenness. And then sometimes we take these offenses on and we begin to, we begin to see ourselves as, as less than. We begin to actually, I think subconsciously question, am I wonderful? Am I unique? Are all of my deficiencies, why? Why am I so incompetent? Why am I so deficient? Why, why can't I... Why can't I succeed like other people? Why can't I have that kind of intellect? Why can't I have that kind of opportunity? Why can't I have that kind of gift? And here's the reminder. You, as you are, are uniquely, wonderfully, fearfully created by God. 
so much of the hurts and pains in life are because we forget that. The racial tensions, the history of racism, what if we were reminded that all people are created in the image and likeness of God? This passage is often used uh, for a pro-life argument that that birth begins at conception, and I believe that. It's actually absolutely true. This is a great passage for that. But some of the critique of pro-choice is that, well, Christians and evangelicals, they talk about life beginning in conception and, and beginning in the womb, and so they'll fight for, the, you know, they'll fight the political battle to outlaw abortion, but then oftentimes they're not caring about the whole life, or actually the church was very instrumental in a racial history segregation of black people so that seems like an inconsistency that seems like a hypocrisy and and so this verse needs to remind us that all of life from womb to tomb matters for you individually for us corporately and for the world christians need to lead the way in protecting human beings in in caring for elderly in assisted living homes and caring for the racial division and racial hurt and engaging that conversation and caring about abortion and how we do that and, and this is this is where the gap that we step into church family we do it with love and compassion but we have to start with this reminder that life matters because it is a gift of god he's the one who thought up your life He's the one who brought it into existence. When I was on sabbatical last summer, my, I had a pastor coach that I was meeting with who was kind of coaching me through sabbatical, and he gave, I've shared this story with some of you, so some of you it's probably old news, but I'm just going to share it again real quickly. He, he told me to read this passage, Psalm 139, and reflect on it, and to journal all the ways that God has uniquely and wonderfully wired me. And I was like, that sounds so dumb. I want to do that. But I did it, because I, well, whatever, I'm like, either I fire him as a pastor coach or I do what he tells me to do, and it probably wouldn't look good if I fired somebody trying to speak into my life, so I'll do it. Here's what I wrote in my journal last summer as I was reading and reflecting on this passage, titled, The Curse of Comparison. And as I go into this, I don't want to alarm you or concern any of you. I want you to know that I really believe Christian growth comes from confession, not from from suppression. Like, we become more authentic as we begin to confess what's really going on in our soul so that the light of Jesus can shine into there and heal us. And and I think I was really good at suppression before and not so good at confession. And I think I'm learning, I hope I'm growing in in the spiritual discipline of confession rather than suppression. And I want you guys to journey on that as well. And it and it's weird. You start confessing stuff in your soul and people are like, I thought you were a good Christian. You're like, I, I think I may be becoming better because I just said that out loud rather than pushing it down in my soul. But I don't know. Time will tell. So here's what I wrote. My pastor coach told me to read and reflect on Psalm 139. Puke seems cliche. <laughs> but in doing so, I realize I've never really read this passage with myself in mind. It's always been for others. Reading it with myself in mind was really good as I realized that God searches me out. He knows me. He loves me. He made me. He thinks I'm wonderful. Ed, my pastor coach, told me to list out some specific ways that God has created me to be uniquely me. And then I need to be careful to not violate who God created Andrew to be. So, who is Andrew? Here it is in a few comparisons. The curse of comparison, right? I'm more studious. Nope, nope, wrong. 
I'm more adventurous than studious. This is just me. And I, it, as I read this list, I'm not comparing one as better than the other. So if, you, if you're on the opposite side of all of my comparison, you are uniquely made and wonderful, and we need the way that you are wired and made in our church. The world needs you. This is how God has wired me. More adventurous than studious. I'm more curious than convinced. I'm more inquisitive than instructive. I'm more of an initiator and starter than a finisher or a perfecter. I'm more relational than intellectual. I value intimacy more than information. I care more about compassion than having a shared conviction. I'm more of a carefree op optimist than a concerned pessimist. I really like the why questions. I hate the how questions. I value kind of the organic nature of things more so than organizing things. I value spontaneity over planning. I want to be mastered by mystery rather than mastering the mysteries. I like gray thinking more than black and white. I really value tension in the middle rather than clarity in the margins. And I prefer the big picture to the minute details. Again, some of you are completely the opposite. Praise God for you. I need you in my life, you need me in your life, and we're going to drive each other nuts. <laughs> as far as I can tell, this is still in my journal entry, this is different from a lot of pastors and religious leaders. So my question is, is the way that God wired me okay? Our church and our non-believing community doesn't need a camp counselor leading them on an exploration of Jesus. They want or need a competent and, comp competent and confident captain who can lead them through troubled seas to a safe harbor. They need, or at least they want, a Tim Keller-like composure, a Tim Mackey mind, a Matt Chandler wit, a John Mark Comer suave and sensitivity, a Jen Wilkin teaching gift, a Mother Teresa heart of mercy and compassion, a substance or river valley-sized impact, a global concern of world vision, a racial justice advocate, a politically bold activist, whether that's on the right, the left, or the center, depending on your own leaning, a sexual identity ethics guru, a Quentin Alfers type of visitation pastor, a David King ability to work a room and woo the elderly, a Mark Driscoll bravado without being Mark Driscoll, of course, the onstage charisma of Stephen Furtick, but the offstage character of a basic old humble godly pastor, the ability to raise money, grow an organization, balance a budget, remodel a building, but all while caring for orphans and widows. You name what they admire about another pastor or leader and chances are I'm not that. Seriously. This isn't a pity party. It's just an honest assessment of who I am and how I feel about how I'm wired or what I'm questioning about how I'm wired. So now what? Am I the right guy for the job? End of journal entry. So I ran this by our elders and a few other trusted members in our congregation coming back from sabbatical. Like, this is a genuine question. I don't want to just keep pastoring for a paycheck and because I don't want to do anything else. Like, am I, am I right for this or not? I ran it by some people and... and all, everyone that I ran it by assured me of two things. Number one, that the man that God has created me to be is the man that they want me to be. That was really helpful. And I think we all need to hear that. You need my reminder, you need other people in your life to remind you that who God has created you to be is who you should be. And if you violate who God created you to be, you're actually saying that God's creation isn't good and you know better than him. So I needed that reminder. The second thing that they reminded me of, and I think you'll like this, that most of you don't have these ridiculous expectations of me. This was simply a symptom of my own sin of comparison. 
And so, Andrew, stop comparing yourselves to others. Start living authentically and start believing that God has created you the way he's created you for his glory, for our good, the advancement of the gospel. Amen. Thank you. Some of you in this room reminded me of that. Thank you. And so that's, that's this piece of understanding that you, I, we are wonderfully created by God. My fear, as we talk about authenticity this, this month, my fear is that oftentimes we try to carbon copy our lives after other Christians. We find some role models, some people that we look up to, and then we start to try to live like them. And the Bible doesn't call us to do that. The Bible calls us to imitate the faith of other people. It doesn't call us to imitate the lifestyle of other people. In fact, the Bible, and we're going to talk about this throughout the month, it says that we're all gifted and wired differently, and it's in that, that diversity of giftings and wirings and personalities and God's creation that we become whole. Amen? You are wonderfully created by God. And so as we're realizing this, we also, I, I want to be careful now, as we go into authenticity this month, I don't want it to become na nasal-gazing where, where we're always looking inward and thinking about ourselves, right? Who am I? How has God wired me? I don't want to become self-centered. We want to be God-centered. But my fear is oftentimes in the church we talk so much about God and theology and these lofty ideas and, and we don't look inward, we suppress our soul, we don't actually get to know ourselves and therefore we have this dry, dusty, lacking intimacy with God relationship because we don't actually know who we are and how God's wired us. David Benner in the book The Gift of Being Yourself, which I highly recommend you reading this month, he says, unless we spend as much time looking at God as we spend looking at ourselves, our knowing of self will simply lead us into an abyss of self-fixation. That's a good reminder. This isn't, all, this isn't about us. This is about our relationship with God. So he gives us that warning. Then he says, but it's also quite possible to be stuffed with knowledge about God that does nothing to help us genuinely know either God or self. Knowing God and knowing self are interdependent. Paradoxically, we come to know God best, not by looking at God exclusively, but by looking at God and then looking at ourselves and then looking at God and looking at ourselves. And I would submit to you, this is the pattern that we see in the scriptures, especially with David in the Psalms. How is he able to say, my soul is hungry, my soul is thirsty for you, God? Oh, God, where are you? Because he knows himself well enough to know that God seems distant. My soul seems dry. And then he, he knows God well enough to say, come and fill my thirst, quench my thirst. We look at God and self, and it's in this that we begin to grow in authenticity. And then lastly, in this passage, kind of verses 17 through 24, it, it bends, let's see here if I can get this right. It, it, it bends us back outward now. I think verses 17 through 24 teach that we are to be authentically aligned with God. They hit you kind of weird, right? This is like a love poem between David and God. You search me, you know me, you've created me wonderfully. And then boom. It's just so funny, this shift. Look at verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Where did that come from? You're sitting there praying, like having this intimate moment with God. You are wonderful. You created me wonderful. I love you. You love me. Oh, big, big bear hug with God, right? Slay the wicked. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. 
Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And, and, and I think what David is showing us here and what we can take away from this is that as we begin to be transformed by God and begin to understand who we are and understand who God is and, and walk in him with authenticity, this for the Christian means that our life is lived in alignment with God, that the things that God hates, we also hate. And some of you are you're, you're hung up on that even, right? Like, oh, I thought God is love. How does God hate his enemies? And God is love. But there is opposition to God's love. And, and God has wrath, which is a steady opposition to the things that hurt his creation in his people. And so there's a tension here in the middle between God's love and God's justice. And, and they're not separate. They go together. But our human minds have a hard time comprehending this opposition to what is wrong and also this love of enemy, right? The ethic of the New Testament is love your enemy. But there's this way to love enemy where it's also standing up for God's truth, and we don't always get that right. That's part of the tension that we live in. The point of this passage here, and, and what I want to kind of transition us into communion here, is that we need to authentically align ourselves with God by loving what he loves, hating what he hates, conforming ourselves to his image and likeness. Christian authenticity isn't you just being whoever you want to be. It's knowing who you are, who God created you to be, and it's being able to sift through, God created me this way, and that's good and holy and redeemable. God created me this way, and that's bad, it's broken, it needs confession, it needs repentance. We've got to learn how to not suppress, but confess what is good and right and true, and also confess what is broken, unholy, and sinful. And it's in that that we become authentic conforming to his image and likeness, which is done in and through Jesus Christ. How these last two verses say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This, I, this idea, this invitation to us, the, the, the foundation of intimacy, or of authenticity, is intimacy with God. You're not going to find authenticity with God unless you first find intimacy with God. That's the invitation. The foundation, and the invitation is here. God, search me and know me. Know my heart. Try me. See if there be any grievous way in me. And David would answer for himself, yep, there is. But he doesn't just sit in that and wallow in it. He doesn't suppress it and try to hide it. Actually, throughout points he does but he always gets caught and then God brings healing and love and restoration and correction and discipline and grace to him he says so so see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting and David wrote this psalm before Jesus the image of the invisible God came and led us us into the way everlasting the way of god's grace through the person and work of jesus christ so every sunday when we gather here at park community church we, we take communion to remember who jesus is that what david longed for the way everlasting you and i have received in jesus the man who lived a perfect life a life that we're incapable of living but he died a sinner's death in our place on our behalf. He overcame sin and death in the grave and has given us a new life, a new name, a new nature so that we can authentically live 
to please God. Amen? I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come up. And when you feel led and ready, if you long to keep walking with Jesus, to receive his gift of grace to you, the elements are here, two in the front, one in the back. The, the cracker represents his body given for you. The cup represents his blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins, his invitation for you to live an authentic life for Jesus and with Jesus. Let me pray, and then let's partake together. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. I thank you that where there was no way, you made a way. I thank you that you see us, you know us, you love us, and that's shown for us ultimately in the fact that you laid down your own life in our place on our behalf. And so, Lord, we transition now to communion, to the Lord's table, being reminded of the body that you gave for us, the blood that you shed for us. And, Lord, we come to the table eagerly expecting to be reminded of the new life that we have in you. Pray that you would nurture us now in the deepest recesses of our soul. For your glory, our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.